But this morning in our service, we are looking at the first recorded war. Now, this probably is not the first war in history. We know that Nimrod waged war against the surrounding cities and conquered them so that he had a massive holding uh, by the time Babel, the episode at Babel came about. But this is the first record where we actually see the movements of these armies, these kings and these people and how, uh, how tribes are being conquered and kingdoms are being amassed. This is the sixth part in looking at the prelude to the Abrahamic covenant. This is the dispensation of promise. Remember that Abraham was given a promise from God that he would be made into a great nation. He was given two conditions in this dispensation that he would separate from his family and that he would be a blessing once he entered into the land. Last week, we saw him finally part with his family. He finally said farewell to Lot. They parted ways. And now we see Abram acting faithfully to God's command to be a blessing. This morning, I have three trails that we're going to trace through this passage. We're going to look at it a little more quickly than we usually look at things. Uh, This is quite a few verses. So we want these three things to be front in our minds as we go through the chapter. We want to see that God's sovereignty extends to all nations. He is not dealing only with the nation of Israel and its birth, but he is orchestrating all of the world conditions. These wars and these fronts all operate under his permissive will. They are arranged for his purposes. And we will look at how he uses this war um, even to bless the children of Lot. We will also see that Abram obeys the command to be a blessing when he enters the land. He has made allies in Canaan. And then he rescues and refuses to take advantage of his neighbors in the Jordan Valley. Last week, we focused a lot on the doctrine of separation and how Abram finally separated from Lot and how he did so first emotionally and mentally, and then he did so physically. But we'll see here that his separation did not result in abandonment or isolationism. He was free of Lot's sinful influence from the influence of the pagan tribes that Lot went into. And this freedom from living in the presence of sin allowed him the freedom to help when he was needed, to be God's servant without the hindrance or baggage of this world. So he did not abandon his nephew Lot, but these family ties still brought him into this war in order to help Lot. So there's a lot of names in this chapter, a lot of foreign names uh, that do not have Hebrew origins. This is one evidence that's used for the uh, idea that Hebrew is the original language, that it's only after Babel before we see foreign names that do not have a meaning in Hebrew. But the fact that we have a bunch of foreign names means this chapter gets a little bit more confusing and hard to understand and hard to divide who's on what side. And uh, part of the problem is we have four different axes of this war. We have the Eastern, we have the Transjordan, we have the Jordan Valley, and we have the allies from Hebron. The beginning of chapter four sets it up for us uh, with the Eastern axis and the Western axis in the Jordan Valley. It says, it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Keterlaumer, king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of Goim. So this gives us a time. This is a normal way of beginning a historical record. And as we'll go through this, we can see that it appears Moses has stitched this historical record into the canon of scripture. In doing so, it becomes a, an inspired text. And he makes a few changes. He makes a few edits in here. Uh, but what we probably have is something from a historical text relating this war. And so this is how they would date things. This would give us the date. It was during the time of these four kings when they all ruled at the same time in their places. 
These kingdoms all come from the area that we saw Nimrod lived in and conquered. But Nimrod's nowhere to be found. This is about 100 years after Nimrod's fall and the fall of Babel. Uh, remember, Nimrod was the son of uh, Cush, who was a son of Canaan, or a uh, son of Ham, rather. It says, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalne in the land of Shinar. This is the land that these kings are coming from. Uh, but the kingdoms are a little different. We see Elam. We have Shinar up north in uh, Assyria. The other two, Goim and uh, Elisar, are up there. But these were some massive kingdoms, and they had remnants, uh, probably a lot more built up then than they are now. And these were mighty kingdoms, big kingdoms with lots of people and big armies that could cross the entire wilderness and come over and invade the Transjordan. And just as God had divided and broken up that kingdom in Babel, um, so he is going to conquer these armies as they come in and try to invade to gain power to themselves. <clears throat> but that is Amraphel's kingdom there in Shinar, the central Mesopotamian valley. Arioch, king of Elisar, comes from Haran, the area where Abram had migrated from into Canaan. So way up north there, the furthest north point that that red line makes, this is the area of Haran. Arioch is a Hurrian name, which means uh, Abram probably came from the kingdom which Arioch ruled. Keterlaumer is the king of Elam. Elam is over there in Persia, or modern-day Iran, uh, on the eastern side of Shinar. And Tidal, the king of Goim, um, is a little more tricky. Tidal is a Hittite name, probably from the name Tutalia, but Goim is the name for nations. It is the word for nations. It may not be a nation at all, but a conglomerate of people. They would call this the Northern Horde, kind of like we had the, uh, the Vandals and the Goths up north that would come down and conquer Lombardy, Italy in the, in the ages when Italy was becoming a nation still. Uh, actually, I don't know if that helps you, but Goim just means nations. Title, the king of nations. We have a conglomeration of nations coming under one king, and we see these four kings coming together. We have the fixings here of world government coming together. This has been uh, Satan's cause and purpose since the flood. He is drawing people together and conquering armies under himself. But these Goim come from the Hittite Empire up north in Turkey. So we have the entire span from the beginning of the uh, Mesopotamian Valley, all the way to the northern part of the Persian Gulf, all the way up that river basin into Turkey. This entire axis of the world comes down and invades Canaan. All the armies up there come and invade this little group of people living in the Jordan Valley. It says here, they made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, and with Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Adma, and Shemeber, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, and that is Zoar. Well, Bera, the king of Sodom, his name actually means evil. It pretty much holds true as we see Sodom progress from here until chapter 19, until it's wiped off the face of the earth, uh, that they are an evil people. But notice we've got one warring horde coming down into Canaan, and it's not the good guys against the bad guys. It's this domineering world power against this little world power, all of them energized by the power of Satan in this world. Satan is trying to organize his kingdom, and he's coming too close to the place where God is preserving Abram. Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, his name means wicked. Shinab, the king of Adma, this one's actually pretty interesting. The Ab at the end means father, and Shin is the moon god. The moon god is my father, is his name. 
Shemeber is the king of Zeboim. Shem means name or reputation, and Eber means mighty. This king had a mighty reputation, and he rules in the land of Zeboim. Now notice those first four, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim. These are the four nations destroyed when God wipes Sodom and Gomorrah off the face of the earth. Adma and Zeboim go with it. Zoar is the one city of these five that's spared, and it's spared specifically on request of Lot. Because Lot is told, head up the mountains and escape from this valley, and he says the mountains are too far, can I go to Zoar since it's small? Zoar means small. And so God grants him that request, and Zoar is spared the same destruction as its neighbors. Now we don't have a name for the king of Zoar. It is a small little city-state, and it's probable that it was just so insignificant that its king's name was not recorded in history. Bela is the old name for this kingdom, and Zoar is what it was known as later on when the Hebrews entered into the land. And so we have that western axis down here, Sodom, Gomorrah, Zoar, Adma, and Zeboim down in the lower Sidim Valley. And it says, these allies all came to the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. So, so far we have this as our war program, our two campaigns, or our two uh, warring parties. We have the Eastern Kings, this domineering group. And then we have these Western Kings of the Transjordan or the Jordan Valley. And there's really not a good, uh, a good group to root for here. This is the Valley of Sidim. Actually, uh, that's what we call the Valley of Sidim today. But Moses does something unique in this language where he replaces the name, the Valley of Sidim, with the Salt Sea. This is one reason why we think this is a record that he stitched into his, uh, his account in Genesis, because he's making corrections to names. This is an old name, Valley of Sidim. And now when the Hebrews enter into the land, they will know it by the Salt Sea. In fact, the whole of the Salt Sea, or what we call the Dead Sea, is probably the Valley of Sidim, where Sodom, Gomorrah, Zeboim, and Adama were. We try to find uh, areas along the edges of this sea to say, well, this was Sodom, this was Gomorrah. Um, but God wiped Sodom and Gomorrah off the face of the earth, and I think he carved out the Dead Sea when he did this. And we'll, we'll look at that more when we get to Genesis 19. Um, but these cities are completely gone. They're wiped off the face of the earth because this judgment of these nations parallels the flood judgment where there was no trace of them left over. But now we finally get the purpose for this war. We see that they're coming from the east. They're invading the valley. These kings of the valley, they're all allied there for war and they're ready for battle. But the reason that they're going to battle in the first place is because they had served Kedolaumer for 12 years. And on the 13th year, they rebelled. This is a pretty standard suzerain vassal treaty that these kings are under. A suzerain would be a domineering uh, kingdom, and the vassal kingdoms would be the subju subjugated kingdoms. Uh, it probably functions a lot like the mafia, where you pay for protection from the domineering kingdom, and as a result, they will also protect you if somebody else tries to invade you and take what they see as belonging to them. And so these five kings are subjected to Ketalaumer, the king of Elam, and they have to pay him tribute every year. And they do this for 12 years, and in the 13th year, they say, you know what, we're done with this. They say, we're going to throw off this overlord. We're not going to pay him anymore. And what does Ketalaumer do? He travels up the Mesopotamian Valley, bringing all of his allies with him. They amass up north towards Haran, where Abram came from, and they decimate the entire uh, valley on their way south. And they don't come just for these five kings. They are conquering the entire region. 
they are going to take the whole place. No longer are they going to be subjugated peoples who pay a tribute. They are going to become part of this kingdom. They are wiping it clean. Now we'll see that Abram, who's up there in Hebron, the highest place in the Canaan side of the uh, Jordan Valley, we've got Lot and these five kings down in the Jordan Valley, but then we have the Transjordan mountain range. They're going to come down the eastern side of this mountain range. They're going to wipe out all of the people as they come. Verses 5 through 7 tell us of that campaign and that defeat. It says, in the 14th year, so it took Ketelaumer one year to group together these kings and stage this battle. It says, the uh, Ketelaumer and the kings that were with him, they came and they defeated. But who did they defeat? says they defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim. Rephaim means strong ones, uh, but this is also a people group that we're familiar with in the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. These are people um, who were interacting with Moses and the children of Israel. Ashtaroth Karnaim is Haran or Bashan. This is where the king of Og was. And it's known to us as the Golan Heights. It's just on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Zuzim in Ham. Zuzim means powerful ones. This is probably the same as the Zamzamim that we see in Deuteronomy. And they live in Gilead, which is just on the north side of the Jabbok River that uh, is just south of the Golan Heights. So they're heading from north to south and conquering these great and powerful people by their names on the eastern side. There's Gilead there. They continue south and they conquer the Amim in Shavakiriathim. Amim means terrible ones. So they're heading south and now they're at the uh, eastern side of the mountains, but parallel here with the valley of Sidim, the Salt Sea. Then they go and they conquer the Horites down at Mount Seir. Well, that's all the way down in Edom, south of the valley. I don't know, if I were the five kings in the valley, I might be wiping some sweat off my brow here thinking, oh good, they skipped us. They went right past us and they're heading south. Mount Seir and Edom is the same location as Basra, where Petra was later built. This is the place where Israel will eventually be preserved and rescued by Jesus. This is the first place his foot is going to touch when he returns to this earth. But this is the location south of the land of Canaan where they went to. And they don't stop there, they just keep going south. This almost seems like a relief. They conquered everyone but us. They go as far as El Paran, which is in the wilderness. El Paran is Elat, down on the Gulf of Aqaba, all the way at the southern point uh, of the Negev. Well, this has some specific implications for Israel. I don't think this is in here just to tell us about the campaigns that were waged. Because this is simply too close to the campaign that Israel wages backwards. They go from Kadesh Barnea down and then up through Edom, up through Moab, up through Ammon, and finally, oops, all the way up there to Bashan. Once they, or as they are traveling through these regions east of the Transjordan, they're told, do not conquer these people. Do not conquer these people. Do not conquer these people. I have not given you this land. But here we see God allowing these lands to be conquered, decimated of people. But there's a specific reason they're not supposed to take this land. In Deuteronomy 2, as Moses is recounting to them the, uh, the campaigns that they waged and that they conquered, he records also the words that God had given them, the instructions on how to conquer, where to conquer, and when to conquer. It says, the Lord spoke to me saying, you have circled the mountain, the mountain of Seir, long enough. They had circled for 38 years around that mountain. Now turn north. 
and command the people, saying, You will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not provoke them, for I will not give you any of their land. And as little as a footstep, or even as little as a footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. God is giving Canaan to the Israelites, and they do not have freedom to just go and take any land that they see. God has a specific portion for them, and he has a specific portion that he's given to Esau as well. He continues, and he says, So we passed beyond our brothers, the sons of Esau, who lived in Seir, away from Arabah, uh, the Arabah road, away from Elat, and from Ezion Geber, and we turned and passed through, uh, through by the way of the wilderness of Moab. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar to the sons of Lot as a possession. Now he gives us a parenthetical as well, and he's tying together that war that we see waged in Genesis 14. He says, the Amim, or the Amim lived there formerly, a people as great, numerous, and tall as the Anakim. Remember, the Anakim are in the land of Canaan when the spies go in. And he says, these are great and powerful people. The name Amim means terrible. These are a terrible people. Like the Anakim, they are also regarded as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Amim. The Horites formerly lived in Seir, but the sons of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their places or place, just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. You see, God is allowing the northern kingdoms or the eastern kingdoms to come and wipe out these people. And he is going to give these locations to Lot as an inheritance. In fact, to Lot's two uh, improperly conceived children. He is still going to give Lot this portion of the land. Abram had given him choice of the land, and God is going to honor that. God is going to allow Abram to give away these portions, and he is going to protect that portion for Lot. He says, when you come opposite the sons of Ammon, now we're heading up north. Do not harass them nor provoke them, for I will not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. It is also regarded as the land of the Rephaim, for Rephaim formerly lived in it, but the Ammonites called them Zamzamin, Zamzamin a people as great, numerous, and as tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their places. Just as he did for the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites from before them, they dispossessed them and settled in their land, or uh, in their place, even today. Moses is recording this because he's showing how God providentially worked to clear out these lands and how Israel is supposed to work with God to clear out the land of Canaan. God is the one who draws borders. God is the one who sets up nations and who tears them down. And God is preserving these kingdoms around Israel, and they are going to act as a buffer to Israel. They will be enemies of Israel at times. They will never quite be allies, but they will be at peace with Israel. And in fact, when we get into some of the last days, we see prophecies that it's Israel's immediate neighbors, which God has preserved, that are going to be allies of Israel, while it is the nations who do not touch the state itself that will come against her. These remain relatively neutral parties. They do corrupt Israel with their idolatry, but they very rarely come in war against them. They are able to live peacefully in their land as long as they properly separate themselves to God. They are not at threat of warring parties otherwise. So this is the path that they take. They follow the same war path backwards. This is called the Valley of the Kings. It's well known for, uh, for as a highway that kings and kingdoms would bring their troops down on the eastern side of the Transjordan if they were 
crossing into uh, the Arabian Desert. This is how they would get into Africa. This is how the Africans would get up into Europe. This is a major highway. Well, coming back to the scene in Genesis 14, their relief doesn't last very long. Because these great war parties, they go all the way to the coast, to the Gulf of Aqaba, but then they turn around. They come back, and they come back through the valley. They came to En Mishpat, and that is Kadesh. Kadesh is where the Israelites sent their spies from, at Kadesh Barnea. So we see they loop around here. They make a big, wide loop, and they come in and attack them head on. As they came and conquered, they conquered all of the country of the, the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. That's all of the people living in the Negev. The, Am uh, the Amalekites did not yet exist, but it doesn't say that he conquered the Amalekites. He says he conquered the country of the Amalekites. This is how the children of uh, Abram, who are coming back into the land, this is how they would know what country he's talking about, because that's where the Amalekites live now. Esau is the father of Eliphaz, and Eliphaz is the father of Amalek, and they took all of the lands west of Edom. The Amalekites were a group that Israel was well acquainted with. In fact, right after the incident at Massah and Meribah that we looked at last week, where they were bickering and um, arguing, and so Moses named the land Bickering, Meribah, right after that we see they encounter the Amalekites. It says, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. God is empowering this battle. God is not only allowing it to happen, but he is helping it to happen. It is going to be Israel that finally conquers the Amalekites. But the land had been previously cleared out by these kings. In fact, Israel is told to remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt. They did not let Israel pass peacefully. And so God had to destroy them. How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary. And he did not fear God. Therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you, the rest, given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. They also conquer the Amorites who lived in uh, Hazazon Tamar. Well, now they've come right up against this valley. These vassals who threw off their suzerain, these people who said no more to this Eastern mafia. We get their names listed for us again, or rather their cities, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela, which is Zoar, they all came out. They came out for battle. They arrayed themselves against the four kings and their armies. They arrayed themselves in the valley of Sidim, and it was four kings against five. These five kings, though they outnumber them as kings, they were greatly outnumbered in people. The amount of military tactics that it would take to get these armies all the way from the east means that their armies must have been massive because they need supply lines to feed them all the way from the Mesopotamian Valley, which means they don't just come as one horde, but they have a line of warriors trailing behind them. 
There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people involved in this in order for this to be possible. And they're coming against these five little kings in the valley of Jordan who share this tiny little space. And one of the kings is so small, he's not even named. They are woefully outnumbered. These four kings just took out everyone on the eastern side of the Transjordan. The great people, the terrible people, the gigantic people, like the Anakim. And here they come to these, this piddly little valley, and they're just going to wipe it clean. In verse 10, we get a little parenthetical here. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits. The area still has tar pits in it. In fact, much of the Mesopotamian Valley also has it. California also has tar pits. California is a bit of a tar pit. Tar is also asphalt, so. But these tar pits that are in the Jordan Valley are mostly under the Dead Sea. When you go down in there, you see these little asphalt volcanoes, and they spit up what's called bitumen, and it floats on the Dead Sea. In fact, here's a modern picture of somebody standing on a floating asphalt barge in the Dead Sea. God carved out this valley, but he didn't necessarily carve out all the way down to bedrock or all the way down. It still floats up. And it still bubbles up, and it still fills the Dead Sea. This tar was used also in the construction of the Tower of Babel. I don't know if it was the same tar from the same valley. It probably just came from the Mesopotamian Valley. But Babel was built uniquely. They used slime, this tar, to build it. Makes me think it probably didn't smell very good and it was probably impossible to keep clean. Probably did look a lot like California. But Josephus says that there was a specific reason they used this tar as well. He says the tower was built of burnt brick cemented together with mortar made of bitumen, which is that tar, that it might not be liable to admit water. They wanted a waterproof tower. Why do you want a waterproof tower? Well, why wouldn't you want a waterproof tower a hundred years after God destroyed everything by flooding the world? Why else would you want a tower that reaches up into the heavens? Josephus said he also gradually changed the government into tyranny, speaking of Nimrod here, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into a constant dependence upon his power. He also said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again, for that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach, and that he would avenge himself of God for destroying their forefathers. These tar pits have a rich history in the Mediterranean, uh, but here they get a bit more of a comic history. Because as these kings, these five kings, are fleeing from the battle, notice they don't stand and fight. These kings flee. They fall into the pits, into these tar pits. One commentator I read this week said, how fitting for the slimy and disgusting kings of Sodom and Gomorrah to meet their end in a tar pit. It is very fitting. But there's also a bit of argument here as to whether or not these two kings survived falling into these tar pits. The most natural reading of the Hebrew text is clear that they died. In fact, the the rabbinic writings on this, they're all unanimously agreed that these two kings died in these pits, so much so that when the king of Sodom returns in verse 17, says the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that's meeting Abram after the battles are over. They say that God miraculously resurrected the king of Sodom 
in order to be a testimony to Abram's power in the land. It was so inconceivable to them that the king of Sodom survived this event that they came up with a miracle to explain it. A better explanation is simply that the campaigns, which must have taken a few days, if not a few weeks, was enough time for them to replace the king of Sodom. See, we're not told here that it's Bera, the king of Sodom. He's just the king of Sodom. But where does this come from? Because in the English text, if we just read right through this, we don't see death anywhere in here. King of Sodom and Gomorrah, they fled, they fell into the pits, and then the survivors of this war, they fled into the hill country. But the Hebrew text doesn't say they fell into them. It just says that they fell there. The question is, what does there mean? Well, in our text, they take a very rare reading of this word. This word there is psalm in the Hebrew, and it's used 101 times in Genesis. And the translators argue that this is the one and only time where it means into them instead of there. Moses, in all of his writing, uses this word 256 times. And the translators are arguing that this is the one and only time where it means into them. In all of Genesis, it's used uh, 84 times, and it always means there or where, which is basically the indefinite term for there. In the entire Hebrew Bible, it's used 815 times, and only two times do they say it means to them. And in uh, Ezekiel 5.3, it says, Take also a few in number from them and bind them in the edges of your robes. Well, if you replace that with there, it means the same thing. The problem with this is they're trying to use a very specific preposition that means away from to mean into. It doesn't mean that. It means moving away from. And so they didn't fall into them. They fell there. Now, this could mean that they fell there in the valley of Siddim, which has tar pits, implying that they fell into the tar pits. They probably did. There's no other reason to mention the tar pits. They fell into the tar pits. But fall is the word we're going to focus on real quick here. It's used 435 times, and 110 of those times it means to die. Whenever it's in the context of battle or hunting, to fall means to die. It is the most common use of this word. In order to interpret it a different way, the burden of proof weighs pretty heavily. The second most common use is the one that they are claiming here, to lose an upright position suddenly. This is a possible reading, that they simply fell in. But Moses uses this word fall to mean at losing an upright position suddenly as a consistent idiom. Every time he talks about falling, it is fall on his face, fall on his face, fell on his father's face, fell on their faces, he fell on his face, but they fell on their faces, they fell on their faces. He uses this term in that meaning as part of an idiom, almost exclusively. The only other one is in Leviticus 26.36, where he says, As for those of you who may be left, I will also bring weakness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies, and the sound of a driven leaf will chase them. And even when no one is pursuing, they will flee as though from a sword, and they will fall. Well, even this one probably means to die. They're running from a sword. And so it seems overwhelming, the historical evidence, the textual evidence, these kings died. They died by means of these tar pits, probably by falling into them, and they fell with their backs to the battle, running away. And then those who survived continued, and they fled to the hill country. The same country that Lot is going to be told later to flee to, and he's going to say, it's too far, I can't. This is how they escaped the battle, those who escaped. 
they fled to the hill country. Well, these ravaging armies, as they came through, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah. They took their food supply and they departed. Now, why was it that Lot chose this land? Because it was well watered, did not depend on God for food. The rivers kept the food going. Abram moving up to Hebron, where there's no rivers, is going to be dependent on God to bring rain. But these valleys, they're not going to experience the same kind of droughts that the Negev would, that Hebron would, even that the coastal plains would. This is a place where he could dwell securely without the assistance of God, without dependence on God, without trust in God. It was a land where his goods would be safe, a land where he wouldn't have to want for food. But he's living in the world here, and the world just eats its own. He is living outside the protection of God. God is going to have to intervene. But Sodom and Gomorrah is not a safe place to live. Not internally and not externally. Moses notes in verse 12, they also took Lot. He's Abram's nephew and they took his possessions. The reason Abram and Lot separated in the first place was to protect their possessions to protect themselves from bickering and arguing over their possessions. And here, they're just swept away in battle. They took Lot and his possessions, and they departed. And again, Moses adds in here, for he was living in Sodom. When we left Lot last time, he had moved his tents as far as Sodom, meaning that he had just come up against it. He was not living in Sodom. But by the time we meet him in this battle, he was living in the city and he was swept away with the war. There is a happy ending to this though. And it's going to set us up for one of the, everything seems to be the best passage, but one of the best passages in Genesis where we meet the king of Salem, Melchizedek. We're not going to get there this morning. You're going to have to wait a month. But we are going to get right up to it. We are going to see victory. Victory through God's servant, Abram. As Abram is acting as a blessing to his neighbors. He didn't need to get involved. He was missed by this. But his lot, or his nephew Lot, was involved. And God is going to allow him to come and rescue his brother Lot and to be a blessing in the land. So it was after the kings fell, either into the pits or by fleeing up the hills, that a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram is not called the Hebrew very often. In fact, this is the first time that this is that anyone is designated as a Hebrew. Now there was a group of vigilantes around this time, actually about 200 years later, called the Apiru, and they were mercenaries that would be hired out to various armies and that they would go in, kill, and conquer. Some have tried to link the Apiru with these Hebrews and said that the children of Israel were really just this mercenary group, uh, but both linguistically and historically, this falls apart. The Hebrews come from the Hebrew word Eber, which is a name. And it does mean mighty one, but they have a descendant named Eber. And in fact, at this time, while Abram is young, Eber is the oldest remaining descendant. Remember that the children have started to die off faster and faster. Abram only makes it to 175 years old. But Eber is well into his 400 years at this point and quickly heading towards 500. Eber is the head of this clan by ancestry, and he is probably still alive. And so these are the people of Eber. Eber plus an I, just like Israel plus an I, means the people of Israelis. Hebrew is the Iberi in Hebrew. But why is Abram designated here as a Hebrew? Well, we only see this term come around in scripture when we are dealing with various people groups and we're distinguishing 
the Israelites from other people groups. We have all the people of the Jordan Valley. We have all the people of the uh, east of the Transjordan. We have all of these groups from the east coming in. And Abram stands as the one Hebrew left in the land. And keep in mind as well, who is writing this? Moses is writing it, and who is he writing it to? The Hebrews coming out of Egypt. He is reminding them that this man, your ancestor, was the one who did this. It's in the writings of Moses where Grandpa Abraham becomes superhero Abraham. Primarily a superhero of the faith. Abram had lived over 400 years before they entered back into the land. That's longer than the United States has been a country. We look back at people like George Washington, and they are heroes. But the people who knew him, he may not have seemed all the time like a, he or like a hero, but just like a person who did valorous things. Abram is here becoming a legend, a true legend. But Moses is reminding them, this is what God does with Hebrews in the land. God makes them able. God gives them ability, especially to protect the things that God has given them. It says Abram was living in the Oaks of Mamre. We discover here that Mamre is actually the name of one of his allies. He's living in the land that is temporarily owned by somebody else, by an Amorite nonetheless, and his two brothers, Eshkol and Aner. It says that these were allies with Abram. That means they are confederate partners. When Abram needs help, these brothers will come to his aid. When these brothers need help, Abram will come to their aid. He is living peacefully with the people in the land, and he is exercising the blessing that God told him to be in the land. Abram is living quietly and he is living faithfully. But when Abram heard that his relative, which here is the same term for brother that he used just a chapter earlier, he said, let's not bicker because we're brothers. It says when he heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. 318 men against these massive armies of the east that wiped out the entire Transjordan. These great and massive men. When, we, when you get to uh, Deuteronomy and Numbers and you see the king of Og, the king of, Bish or the king Og, king of Bashan, we learn that his bed was about 12 feet long because he was a big man. These armies have just come and decimated these giants in the land, these massive people, these warring people, these terrible and frightening people. And Abram leads his group of 318 men, a lot like Gideon with his 300, because God is the power behind them. God is the victory. And it doesn't matter how big the army is. Now, these trained men, once again, this is another interesting word that cues us into the fact that Moses is probably preserving for us a historical record because this word only occurs in Hebrew once and it has its root in Egyptian, ancient Egyptian. This is a word for uh, men who are employed in battle. That means that these aren't just the 318 men who were old enough in his tribe, but the 318 men whose job it was to protect, whose job it was to be warriors. They have full-time military. 318 men. And now this graphic brings them up uh, through Jerusalem. I don't think that's very necessary. I think they probably went right through the valley all the way up to Dan. Because they're going to chase them all the way to the northern part of the land of Canaan. They're going to chase these four kings all the way out. 
We also see that Abram is a very capable leader using tactics of war. He's not just sending his horde towards them, this little tiny horde of 318 men, but he's dividing his forces against them. He's specifically attacking them by night. He is being thoughtful about what he's doing. He's being wise about what he's doing. He divides his forces against them. They attack at night, both he and his 318 servants. They defeat them. They defeat these armies that wiped out the entire land, and they pursued them. They chased them. These armies actually ran from these 318 men. They chased them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. You see, not only did they chase them out of the land of Canaan, but they chased them out of the land of those kingdoms that they had conquered. Chased them all the way out of the Rephaim's territory. They cleared the way. And God would put his people in there. God would populate these nations. We see that Abram was successful because he was faithful. He did as God would have him do. Now, notably, this is the one chapter in the entire book of Genesis where God does not speak. God is nowhere saying anything. In fact, the name of God in these first, fifth, first 16 verses has not even been mentioned. He is going to be mentioned in the next few verses with Melchizedek and Abram. In fact, he is going to be worshipped and glorified. It's not until the next verses where we see that Abram did all of this in dependence on God. And once he wins the battle, he's not willing to enrich himself or to be enriched by others. He is only willing to wait on God. He is going to continue to be a blessing in the land. He is going to be a blessing to those three brothers who came to his aid to help rescue Lot. He is going to let them take rewards. They've now become enriched by the world, but through the deference of Abram. They blessed him in coming to his aid, and he was a blessing to them. We remember what God told him, what his instructions were when he entered into the land. He said, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. He finally did that when he separated from Lot. He says, go to the land, which I will show you. And he did that. He says, once you're there, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. And God's in the process of doing that. But he also gave him another command. He said, you shall be a blessing. This is not a future tense verb. This is a command, an imperative verb. This is something that Abram is responsible to do. And here he is doing it. And we see that God will bless those who bless Abram. These three brothers blessed Abram. God is going to bless them. And the one who curses you, I will curse. Both of those words for curse are different words in the Hebrew. The one who treats you lightly, the one who disregards you, the one who does not esteem you. I will separate, I will conquer, I will defeat, I will tear down. This has happened. We see God being faithful as Abram is being a faithful blessing in the land, fulfilling his responsibility as the steward of this dispensation of God's promise. God is also faithful immediately to do as he said he would do. God is testing Abram as the patriarch of this line that he is about to produce a people of his own choosing, that he would mediate blessing well in the land because God is going to bless all of the families of the earth through him, not by being a tyrant leader, not by being a man who's cunning and wise to gather to himself all of the riches that he wants, but by one who defers to God as Adam was supposed to in the garden, as Eve was supposed to in the garden, deferring to God's view, to God's interpretation of the world around. Abram is learning to do this. 
And so he brought back all the goods. He retrieved it from these nations. He also retrieved Lot as well as Lot's possessions. He retrieves the women and the people. Now at the end of this chapter, we'll see that there's going to be two kings that come up to Abram. Both Melchizedek and the king of Sodom come up. The king of Sodom is going to offer to Abram, he says, take whatever you want of the plunder, but leave the people. You see, as the conqueror of these armies that conquered the entire Transjordan, Abram has the right to say, it's all mine. It's my kingdom. God has given it to me, and God conquered them before me, and now he empowered me to be the conqueror of them. God has given me the land. But he is deferring to God here. Sodom, or the king of Sodom, is saying, plunder us, fine, but leave the kingdom. Leave the people, because the riches are not the kingdom. The people who occupy it are. He's saying, take us for all that we're worth, but leave us as a kingdom to rule ourselves, to govern ourselves. They had just thrown off their suzerain. They had just thrown off their mafia leader, and they were not ready to be subject to another. And God was not ready to elevate Abram in the land. The importance of being faithful to God Especially when God has given a promise and we see that we can take that promise for ourselves now. But that's not what God's doing. How often do we see somebody else falling or failing and we think, well, this is good for me. This is God blessing me through their stupidity. I have heard people say that. I've thought that myself. And I have to check myself because Abram could have done the exact same thing here. I knew a man once that prided himself on saving enough money that when all of his friends ran out on their paychecks, he could buy up all their stuff that they spent all their money on dirt cheap. They would go out to the oil fields, earn a bit of money, spend it all on TVs and guns, hundreds and hundreds of dollars, and he'd go and pick it up for pennies on the dollar. And he looked at it as doing a favor to all of these fools by giving them some pennies for their riches. He was enriching himself by the world, but not depending on God, not being a blessing in the land, not showing others a changed life not showing others the grace, the mercy, the peace, the love of God, but being cunning like the serpent in the garden, drawing power to themselves. This is not Abram. Abram has learned. Abram went to the school of hard knocks in Egypt, and we saw him come out a changed man. That changes the way we live when we come into the presence of God and have a personal encounter with him. And when we understand his grace, this changes us. And we ought to let it. And that's why the Old Testament is just so important. Because we see countless lives changed by an encounter with the one true God. So in closing, we want to remember these three trains that we can follow through this chapter. God's sovereignty extends to all nations. He's not involved just in Canaan, but in every nation and in every king that we saw in this chapter. God is permitting them to make their moves. God is organizing and orchestrating for his purposes. These lands that were conquered, he's going to fill it with Ammonites, Moabites, Edomites. And God is going to preserve those groups when Israel comes back into the land. Abram obeys the command to be a blessing when he enters the land. He's made allies with the three brothers in Mamre. He rescues his neighbors in the Jordan Valley, and he refuses to take advantage of them, when by worldly standards he had every right, the right of the conqueror to take the spoil. 
And Abram's separation from Lot did not mean that he abandoned Lot to just whatever fate would come about him. Remember, Abram and Lot are not just brothers by blood, but they are both believers in the one true God. They are some of the few believers on earth in the one true God. Lot doesn't live it very well, but it's undeniable as we see the New Testament interpretation of Lot. He was righteous. The only way one can be called righteous is if they have the righteousness of Christ. Lot did. Lot trusted God for life. And Lot received that, but he didn't live a life demonstrating that. Abram did. But nonetheless, Abram separated from his sinful nephew, Lot. But that did not mean that he abandoned him completely. When Lot was in need, because Abram was separated, he was able to come and help. Separation does not mean isolationism. It does not mean abandonment of others. But it means a removing of our dependence on people, our dependence on the world, and a placing of our dependence in God and in Christ. So we don't need from our others in order to be filled. But we have the ability to fill others because we have all of our needs met in Christ.